0: Welcome to OBEHAVE, the Behavioral Science Podcast from Ogilvy Change.
1: One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street.
2: Forth and I'm Maddie Croucher and as you're aware we're the hosts of this podcast and editors of the Obehave blog. So Nudge Week has arrived. This Friday June 9th behavioral science enthusiasts from all around the country and abroad will be arriving in Folkestone for a day of interesting talks on a broad range of psychological research insight and application. There'll also be a chance to enjoy interesting conversation food and drink and a splash of seaside fun.
0: It is sold out, and for those of you with tickets, we're expecting more people than ever, so getting there early is a good idea. And for those of you who didn't manage to get a ticket, or are too far away, you can follow the events of the day via Twitter, where we'll be posting quick video
2: highlights. Just like previous years, all the talks will be available online soon. We thought we'd take the opportunity in the week of NudgeDoc to share a backstage interview from last year with author and broadcaster Tim Harford. Many of you will know Tim from his Radio 4 programme, More or Less and his column, The Undercover Economist. Last year, he was one of the most captivating speakers at NudgeDog, talking about the importance and value of embracing mess. We had many good speakers last year, but Tim's talk stands out for its theatre and how he captured the audience's attention with a masterful use of calm pauses and music. You can check it out now on our YouTube page. After the talk, Ogilvy's Tara Austin and Paul Eden, whom you heard on our last episode, caught up with Tim.
0: He succinctly advocates for the benefit of embracing mess and difficulty and provides a couple excellent strategies to achieve the flexibility of thought required for this approach. Finally, it's interesting to note that back in June 2016, Tim made a particularly prescient observation of what he called the Trump strategy of winning, quite possibly the first reference to Trump on this podcast. Now here's the conversation between Tim Tara and Paul.
1: George, did welcoming?
3: I was going to say, how should I introduce you in terms of sort of job title? We've had a lot of evolutionary biologists. Let's ask Tim to do that himself.
4: Yeah, yeah, you can can ask me, that's fine. (laughs) Welcome to Ogilvy
1: Change Podcast, Tim. Please introduce yourself, who you are and what you do and why you're here today.
4: My name is Tim Harford. I'm a writer. I write books about economics and business and behavioural economics, I suppose you would say. I write a column for the Financial Times and i present radio programs for the bbc most famously more or less which is a program about the numbers all around us in the news
1: thank you and maybe you'd like to start by summarizing your talk today
4: i'm speaking at nudstock about the benefits of frustrations and obstacles and distractions Anything from trying to study uh, from a text based on an ugly font to trying to play a concert on a piano that doesn't work properly to working with strangers you don't like, you don't necessarily get on with. All of these different sorts of obstacles, all of these different sorts of frustrations. And my argument is these things often help us solve problems. They make us more creative. Um, not always for the same reasons. There are different reasons why they might make us more creative. Um, and also that we undervalue this sort of challenge. That We don't, don't realise it's going to make us creative. We don't realise it's going to help us. We don't embrace it. We try to avoid it. And even afterwards, even after we've, perhaps we've had that interaction with the stranger, um, we don't recognise that it helped us solve a problem. We, do, we feel quite bad about it. So that is the, the argument. Frustration makes us more creative and we should embrace it a little bit more.
3: Fantastic. So the beautiful constraint uh, uh, by, oh gosh, Adam Morgan. Adam no. Morgan, yes. Yes, by Adam Morgan has been recently in, in the press. Um, how would you describe your argument as perhaps different from his?
4: I haven't encountered his argument, ah, so I have okay. nothing whatsoever to say about oh, my yeah. argument
3: <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can
1: summarize. It's interesting that he's, he's yes. a, a practitioner in advertising yes. who's uh, published a, 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 a book, uh, the, the premise of which is In the Same Neighbourhood. Mm. I can't tell you if it's the same because I haven't read your book either mm. and I haven't heard your speak, if mm. the truth be known. So, um yeah, the idea being that to operate within constraint, just like you know, the structure of a sonnet is the creative appeal of that kind of poem, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, what moved you to write this book? Why? It, I mean, it's not a brand new topic, is it?
4: So the the book is called Messy, and it is. It's new ground for me. You could say it's a sort of sequel to my book of a few years ago, Adapt, which is about experimentation. And to some extent, uh, mess, obstacles, uh, constraints, you, you could argue they provoke experimentation. So you were trying to do something one way, you can't do it the way you wanted to do it, and therefore you switch and you try and do it another way. So that, that is one way in which... Uh, messy is a sequel to, to adapt. Um, but there are lots of other things that I discuss in the book. For example, um, the, what you might call the, the Trump strategy of winning, uh, which, which is basically to... It doesn't matter how much chaos is taking place in your, your own camp. It doesn't matter um, how many mistakes you make. As long as you can move quickly enough, you can bring your opponents down to your level and below your level. Uh, and I think that's how, uh, one of the key reasons why Trump won the Republican uh, primary nomination. Because he made, I mean, his main opponent for a long time was supposed to be Jeb Bush, and he just made Jeb Bush look so slow and so ponderous. But the fact that Trump kept saying all these stupid things didn't seem to matter. And he he outran outrage. When people started to complain about the fact that he'd done a... Um, an offensive impression of a disabled reporter, for example. He just attacked the New York Times for overpaying for the Boston Globe. and it, it was always on to the next thing. Mm. But we see that in other competitive situations. So the um, world uh, heavyweight champion, Tyson Fury, uh, one of the way he's not a great boxer generally, um, but it, he's viewed as having won the world championship because he managed to bring his opponent Klitschko, down to his level. And one of the ways he managed to do that is by switching. This is a, a, originally a plot from Rocky II, switching from left-handed boxing to right-handed boxing uh, halfway through the fight. Um, and that's, that's no way to be a better boxer, but it is a way to make your opponent a worse boxer. And it's only one of you can win, mm. so that can have the same effect. So it's, I'm going beyond this idea that um, these obstacles can make us creative. That's part of it. But they can also make us faster, they can make us more competitive. And there's also a section of the book where I argue that they, they can make us more resilient and stronger.
1: So at base, it's first about tackling challenges rather than sidestepping them and making the challenges themselves make you better at what you do. And then moving forward from that, uh, you, you're discussing a range of strategies. I mean, the ones you have just mentioned there were diversion and distraction and or zigging when... People expect you to zag, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of strategic advice in this book.
4: I hope there there is advice that all kinds of people will be able to use. So I I talk about, for example, the public speaking style of Martin Luther King and how much improvisation went into his greatest speeches. So, for for example, um, uh, I Have a Dream. There's the half that we remember and there's the half that we don't remember. And the half we don't remember was the first half, which was pre-scripted and was a bit ponderous and the half we do remember was when he stepped away from that script and responded to the challenge of the moment he realized he wasn't quite reaching the audience he wasn't quite doing what he wanted to do and so he began to improvise not I mean, it wasn't completely off the cuff. these were themes he'd spoken about before but he realized he he hadn't planned to speak about them at that moment on that day uh, and he changed his plans and we need that freedom to change our plans.
1: Are you interested and, well, I think I I can presume your interest, but are you surprised, that's a better word, are you surprised by the level of recent interest expressed by our community, the community of communicators and in in the world of marketing, um, in your kind of academic discipline, your area of thinking?
4: It seems to me that um, economics, in a classical sense, hasn't had very much to say to advertisers. In fact, economics didn't really have a good theory of advertising at all. People people are fully informed, they know about prices, they're perfectly able to judge the quality of everything, therefore advertising serves no purpose. And and then you get these quite extraordinary theories of what advertisers might be doing. Um, So maybe Coca-Cola's advertising spend is is about demonstrating that Coca-Cola isn't going anywhere. It's like a commitment strategy. Um, Not very persuasive. Uh, But then when behavioural economics came along, and this is in many ways um, the study of how to change people's behaviour through um, small tweaks that change their perceptions, change change the way they view things. Um, Clearly, that's of interest. Um, I, I would imagine that... Advertising and marketing has as much to teach behavioral economics as the other way around. But yeah, no, I'm not surprised, given what research has been coming out of behavioral economics recently, that it has a marketing use. It has a, has a use in persuasion and communication. That's what it's all about.
1: Our previous interviewee um, said something interesting. It's just hardly revelatory, but it's kind of managed my thinking, which was her background as an experimental psychologist is about the. Obviously, about the theory and her um, excitement about getting involved in the world of marketing and communications is that, if, in a way, there's the world's one of the world's biggest labs to you know to run to you know to see applications of theory run and to and to test. Is that interesting? Do you think the fact that
4: there's um yeah there's an interesting, do, do you see what I mean there's a, yeah there's an interesting deal that is, is potentially there to be done between researchers. And, and business people, and not not just in, uh, in advertising and marketing, but, but more generally. For example, I've uh, recently um, written about a, a study of how to persuade transatlantic airline pilots to burn less fuel. It turns out if they're a little bit more careful with the fuel calculations, they can save a bit. If they work harder to, to negotiate exactly the right flight path, the right altitude, they can save a bit more fuel in flight. And then once they've landed, if they switch off most of the engines and just have one engine on just to keep the plane going, they can save a bit more. The total between three and six percent, but three and six percent of the fuel of a transatlantic airliner is a lot. Um, now, in come the behavioral economists, and they say, well, we'll we'll help you um, the airline. We will help you persuade your pilots to do this. But that's that's a. Um, that's that's an, that's HR. That's an HR problem or a personnel problem rather than an advertising problem. And there there are a large number of academics now doing personnel economics with this with the theories of behavioral economics and with the toolkit of randomized controlled trials. And of course, that's a, that's a great quid pro quo. The the business gets a more effective approach, and the academics get the data. <clears throat>
1: I I mean, essentially it's communications too. It's just inwardly directed rather than outwardly directed to to the staff. You said said HR. That sort of diminished it a bit, you know. In
4: in that particular case, Mm -hmm. it's internal communications, but um, if uh, you are doing, as another group of behavioural economists did, if you're doing a study of, say, fruit pickers and how fruit pickers are paid, whether they're paid to work in teams or individually, um, and what the piece rate is and what the flat rate is, you could say that's communications, but I mean, that's straightforward, what is the right way to incentivize exactly the behaviour that you want In uh, with a, a big power differential between the employer and the employee. And again, there's some behavioural economics there.
3: To recognise something that seems like a frustration, um, a limitation, and, and have the flexibility of thought to see it as an opportunity and a way to reframe your thinking, um, that does take Sort of a flexible mind uh, in order to see a new creative potential. Do you think that requires that we leave our egos at the door? Is there a question of we don't want to be wrong, we don't want to change our thinking from the past and if we were a little bit more ego free we would therefore be more creative?
4: That might be part of it. So it might be a case that you're committed to a certain path and embracing a different way requires acknowledging that you were wrong, um, which takes a certain degree of, of self-assurance and and humility, I suppose. That's a strange combination. You're confident enough to, uh, to step away from your previous actions and to, to do something else. But I don't I don't know if it's just about ego. So one of the people I interviewed for for the book, Messy was this great ambient composer and producer, Brian Eno, who's worked with, with Everybody. He's worked with Devo, he's worked with U2, he's worked with Coldplay, with Paul Simon, and of course with David Bowie. It's a famous series of albums they made together with the producer Tony Visconti in Berlin. And Brian was talking about the advantages of these interruptions and these random elements and how that was an essential part of the music making. And then he said, he said David was particularly good at spotting that there was something interesting going on inside a mistake, or inside something that was unintended. So you, they were working on a song, they had a particular effect they were aiming for, it was nearly done, it was nearly ready, and then some accident would happen, and David would say, no, we need to stop what we're doing, we need to focus on that, because that is really worth amplifying, that's really worth uh, working with. And does that suggest that David Bowie didn't have an ego? I don't know, I, mean, I I sadly never met David Bowie, um, that seems to be about a particular kind of curiosity and a particular kind of risk-taking, rather than about a particular kind of humility. So there are all sorts of different ways that one can get to what I'm advocating, which is embracing a little bit more mess in your life.
3: I'm very interested in this in, in the sort of process or the procedure. Uh, there's often, it's often described that great creativity, you know, it's not a, it's not a Graph that goes up in a line. It's not a, a straight process. It goes round in circles, um, and yet uh, you, you definitely wouldn't say that our creative departments are ego free. Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't think that's controversial to say. Um, but I'm interested in this this thought of um, of of recognizing when things can change, even if you've gone halfway down the line. It might seem you've gone all the way down the line, being prepared to pull back at the last minute and say, hey, no, everything that's gone before was rubbish. That's all gone. We're moving on now. And that that kind of flexibility of thought. How can we do that? What are the th- if, if not just in the context of our ego, are there any tips and tools that you could talk about for our flexibility of thinking, if you like?
4: So there are a couple of things. You can um, adopt a tool that forces that sort of random change on you. Couple of examples. Um, One uh, is uh, Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies, which I know have a little cult following in certain creative professions. So, the Oblique Strategies deck is a deck of cards that just has all these weird gnomic statements on, like water or is it finished? Or everybody swap instruments. It was originally designed for the recording studio, but you can get yourself a deck of Oblique Strategies, or you you can install it on your smartphone. There are all kinds of Oblique Strategies apps. You just click them and it'll say something weird to you, and you're supposed to follow the instruction. So you can do that. You can embrace that. You can roll dice. You can draw cards. I mean, there are v- all sorts of varieties. Random on,
3: tools. Yes,
4: all sorts of varieties on that. Another possibility is um, to, to try to work with different people more often, to get somebody with a different view in your team, um, because that is, of course, very energising, uh, very exciting, and kind of annoying. It's much more difficult when there's this stranger in the room. Uh, the curious thing is everybody changes their behaviour. So we, I think, we think when we think about all the advantages of diversity, um, we think that it, the stranger comes in, and because the stranger has a different view, the stranger contributes something new. And of course that can happen. But often what is actually going on is all of the friends, all of the, the close colleagues, they all change their behaviour, They have to justify their own actions more. They have to be less lazy in their thinking because they are on their best behaviour because the stranger's in the room. And so lots of studies of this, um, everything from jury trials to problem-solving exercises. Um, The weird thing is that people don't realise that having this strange person, having this extra cognitive diversity has helped them. They don't particularly enjoy the experience. They don't think they did a better job. They don't think they solved the problem but in fact they did. So it's it can be quite tough to, to embrace these different approaches.
3: We are not transparent to ourselves, unfortunately, but that's a great argument for diversity and uh, movement in and around uh, our business. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure.
2: Huge thanks to Tim for that great conversation.
0: Yeah, simple but provocative. Mess really is outside most of our comfort areas, but I have to agree. It looks like a real strategy to achieve something new and amazing. If you'd like to read more, Tim's book
2: is called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. You can also follow Tim on Twitter, at Tim Harford, and follow us at Ogilvy Change. While you're waiting for your next installment of OBehave, you can get your behavioral science fix on our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com. And we promise we'll try and get our next episode out on time this month. Yeah, sorry, that was my bad. I left the country and we haven't quite figured out transatlantic recording. Yet. <laughs> yeah, it's all Julia's fault. <laughs> um, and don't forget that you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash We want to extend thanks to our sponsor, Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways.
0: Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thank you for listening.